Welcome to The Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Callaghan. In this episode, a recording taken from the launch of Gregory Day's novel, The Bell of the World. This book is both a song to the natural wonders that are not yet gone, and a luminous prehistory of contemporary climate change and its connection to colonialism. It is a book immersed in the early to mid-20th century, but written very much for the hearts of the future. Ellie Varenti, writer and broadcaster, launched The Bell of the World and joined today in conversation. Here's Varenti, and I hope you enjoy their discussion. Welcome. Uh, my name's Ellie Varenti, and I thank you for coming to readings tonight for a conversation with me and the novelist, poet, essayist and musician Gregory Day. Greg's accolades include the Australian Literature Society Gold Medal, the Elizabeth Jolly Prize and the Manly Artist Book Award. In 2019, his novel A Sand Archive was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin. And in 2020, he received the Patrick White Award for his ongoing body of work. We'll return to this notion, this idea of body of work later, I think. In 2021, he was awarded the Nature Conservancy Australia Nature Writing Prize. And last year, he published his first collection of essays, Words Are Eagles, Selected Writings on the Nature and Language of Place. And tonight, we're here to celebrate Greg's new novel, The Bell of the World, and what a book it is. I've known Greg for 30 years, and during that time, over 30 years actually, and during that time, we've had lots of walks, and lots of talks, and yeah, I've read all his work, or most of it at least, And yet, whenever I do read something of his after it's published, after it's out there in the world, and it no longer, in a sense, belongs to him or indeed to me, the reader, I'm invariably blown away, awed, excited, and I'm sometimes silenced, but in a good way. It's it's that thing that some of you might be familiar with, that thing of knowing a person as friend and then encountering that same person as artist. They're the same, but they're not the same. It's confusing, but in a really, really good way. Greg, before we begin our conversation tonight, I'd like to read a message from your publisher at Transit Lounge, Barry Scott. Dear Gregory, Ellie, all at readings and those who were there, I would so love to have been there tonight for the launch of the Bell of the World. But a lockdown cancelled airfare had to be used by now or lost. So when this is being read, I will have been at Ansvam Beach in Goa, India for two nights. (laughs) So far staying at a place called the Wellness Inn. Very different to our concept of wellness, obviously. Modest, no doubt, but I will have heard the ocean last night. Firstly, thanks to Gregory's agent, Jean Rickmans, whom I first met some years ago on an Australia Council literary event in India for sending me the manuscript. And thanks, Gregory, for the honour and privilege of publishing your beautiful novel. From its beginning, The Bell of the World opened up a world of physicality and anticipation for me. A young woman is riding a train up front with the driver and the coal stoker. The window of the carriage is smashed One can feel the cold air as the train crosses the last paddock and enters the darker forest. There's the memory of Europe, where Sarah has been, but the place and the light is so different here. 
marsupial light. And further on where Sarah has come to stay with her uncle Fernie, gully after gully, ridge after ridge, towering gum trees and silences in the far distant, a hint of ocean. I was immediately transported to thoughts of my own ancestors who came from Finland to live in the hills well beyond Bensdale, 50 miles from nowhere, as someone described it in the early 1900s. How strange and wondrous the Australian flora and fauna and sounds and smells may have seemed. I loved that in this novel, Sarah's and Fernie's shared love of different art forms, music and literature, coalesces around the natural world. I felt drawn into their spirit and minds in a way that only a highly skilled novelist can enable. They are unlike anyone else and in a world where so many books seem alike, I felt like I knew them and I loved them. And at every turn here, the writing encapsulates both place and personal alignment. At the inn in Geelong where our protagonists once stay, Sarah takes a bath and we hear, quote, the whole building becoming an instrument of its water through the pipes. Elsewhere, the willy wagtail that appears in Sean Marlowe's evocative colour illustration sings its three-rung song. To be imagined and reimagined in supple hands and listening ears is a line that appears in the book and it seems an apt description of my reading of it. It is a book that made me rethink so many things, realise how much that is beautiful and precious in our world is remaining and that there were those individuals before us who saw that we are just one small part of something much bigger. But the bell is ringing and I must go now. Do have a great evening. <laughs> That's from Barry. So reading your book for me was like, it was like being given a hearing aid. It was like, it was as if I'd been in the world without a hearing aid and only listening to the world partially. And so after I read it, I mean, obviously because I was going to be talking to you, Greg, and I was reading it in that way that we do when we, we were going to have to sort of examine it in some way. I stopped and started, stopped and started. But then I realised that I couldn't read it in bits and I couldn't read it in that sort of skimmy way. It was impossible. That I had to, and it's really hard for so many of us, and I, I count myself amongst those, really hard to sit with anything, with anything that requires the sort of focus and the sort of attention that this kind of reading needs. But I did, and when I got to the end, I just went outside. I wanted to ring you and just kind of rave and chat. But instead I just walked and I felt like I'd been given a hearing aid to the world. This whole theme of, of listening, of being present. Can you talk to that for a little bit? I like the hearing aid <laughs> story, that's good. Although my mum's hearing aid has issues at times, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, my father used to switch his off. It was very selective. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But mm. this hearing aid hopefully is smoother, smoother technology. Maybe it wasn't a great efficient. metaphor, but anyway. No, it is, it is. Okay. <laughs> well, look, it is a book about, as Maria Takalander says on the back cover, it is a book about listening. I mean, it is what it is and it came to me the way it did and I would firstly say you cannot explain it all. There's a lot of dreaming in it. There's a lot of craft, but that's not all it's about and it's not all premeditated. 
but you know there is a kind of literacy it's dealing with which I think about a bit where I live and I'm kind of immersed in that place and and increasingly aware of the literacy about the cultural landscape not only the natural landscape but the cultural landscape and you know they somebody came up with the term nature deficit disorder which I don't like the term it's it sounds very clinical and so forth but there is an issue with that in terms of just to dive straight in here the ecological crisis like do we know what we're trying to save this is the thing and we're all kind of on board but do we really know it in its detail and so this book because I've lived where I lived for a while and and it's my kind of great pleasure and immersion but it's complex and political as well I just wanted to let fly with the detail and the literacy about that and to create some immersive world where, as it says, we're not listening to that bell, we're listening to this bell. I mean, it comes from an urgency, this book. It's, it's kind of comic and it's lyrical and all that, but underneath it is this real urgency about what the state we're in and what we've got to do and what we've got to get acquainted with and what we've got to unhook from. So for me, the listening is, is all about that. Yeah. And, I mean, it's obviously crucial to the, to the engine and what drives this book and what drives your kind of writing of it. And as I alluded earlier, you know, this comes as a result, I guess, of, of enormous amounts of work and reading and thinking that's happened over the last 30, 40 years of your um, working life. But, you know, that literacy... So we're talking about literacy, nature literacy. There's also the literacy I was mentioning earlier about the reading literacy, which is not literally about being able to read, but it's about being able to sit and read and read in a way that is attentive. And, of course, in the sort of culture we're in now, we're losing that to a great deal. Can we talk about the story? Can we talk about the story and the way you've told the story, the three-act structure that you've used... You've said to me that there's a lot of you in this book. And, I mean, sometimes writers say that and it's kind of really obvious. And then other times, like in this case, you've said it to me and it didn't surprise me, but it's, it's alerted me. And I'm just wondering, when you say that, what, what do you mean? I think I'm a, actually a born romantic and a nature romantic yeah. in an era where that is really on the nose. Like, I was at Melbourne University in the 80s and that was just not on. So not on then. So not on. So not on. And so that's fair enough. I understand why. I understand why. But the impulse to sing, say, Mm -hmm. about the beautiful world, if you like, is still there anyway. In a place like this, in a, you know, a colonial country like this where so much blood has been spilt and so much damage has been done... It's a complex impulse. So it has taken me a long, long time to be able to sing in this way Mm. about it. You know, there's also a a sort of subterranean project there which is about anti-nostalgia. It's actually not a nostalgic impulse at all in that sense. It's not a romantic nostalgic impulse for something that was. It's about something that can be and the mix of things, the hybridity of things and the allowing of things in and the non-judgment and the non-naming of things. And that's a really strong theme throughout. And, of course, Sarah, our central protagonist, 
is all about that, isn't she? I mean, she kind of absorbs that and then creates her own version of that hybridity. Yeah, well, Sarah's someone who is born in Australia but then is in a messy family and is kind of damaged by that and gets sent to boarding school in England. And in this kind of low sky, rainy, eerie kind of school she's in, she's very uncomfortable. And the way it works out for her, she feels a space inside her, a very vast space, which is being kind of roofed in by this English school. And this kind of vast space is something that I felt when I first went to Europe. When I first went there, I felt this immense kind of landscape inside me in contrast to the streets I was I remember I was you telling down. that story and I remember yeah. you saying you arrived in Paris and something happened to you. A lot of us did go to do that mm. trip in our early 20s or mm. how old were you, 20, early 20s? 21. 21, yeah. And something happened to you and a little bit maybe like what happened. Yeah, I became aware of this landscape inside <laughs> me that I'd never really been aware of. It's just where I'd come from. And for Sarah, that happened and it was her kind of talisman, if you like, and her confidence within the strictures of the world she was in, in England. But when she came back to Australia, then the story is about someone whose internal world gets in sync with the external world. So she's back in that immensity and she finds a place of link. So the inside becomes the outside, the outside becomes the inside, which is why she wants to doctor a piano in the homestead with the outside world, with the parrot bone, with the kangaroo shin and prepare the piece. She wants to bring the outside and the inside and the inside to the outside so that the whole thing is unified. Mm -hmm. And so that's a large part of... For me, when I was writing her, when she's coming back and she's in the cottage, I found myself going back to this sense of immense landscape I felt when I first went to Europe. I thought, oh... Maybe she's feeling that and now she she's finding a way to connect it up. Yeah. So just to set it up a little yeah. more practically here, we're talking early 1910, so not that long after Federation. So we're in a particular moment in our colonial history here. She's a, a fairly well-off, as we'd say these days, a very privileged young white woman and, and her uncle Fernie, oft described as eccentric by the critics, I've noticed they love to use the word eccentric, don't they, when they can't quite understand or maybe don't quite know what to say about him. But he's a fascinating, complex character. And she develops this relationship with her uncle. It's a very particular kind of creative, intellectual sort of companionship that they develop in that house. And she makes art. She becomes an artist. Well, she's always an artist, but she realises that she's an artist. It's never spoken, it's never... but she does... And you were talking about that inside-outsideness, which sounds kind of, I don't know, inaccessible. But actually, when you're reading this, the experience is quite mesmeric. What happens is that you feel, as the reader, I felt like I was at once inside her head, then outside her head, then inside the landscape, then outside the... La that kept on happening to me the whole time. It was an amazing kind of motion... And so by the end of it, you've actually experienced all these points of view and all these sensations and feelings. It feels effortless, but it's so complex the way you've done it. It's remarkable. Well, F Fernie is the type of person who, because of his privilege and his nature, mm. he's just very open-minded and he's involved with avant-garde circles in Europe and England and so forth. He's a classic, really, a bon vivant. 
but very intelligent and aesthetically sophisticated. And Sarah is sent to him because no one else in the family can mm. manage her, if you like. But he just loves what she is. He loves yeah. the... He sees her. He sees her and he encourages her in a way that she wouldn't have developed that way if it wasn't mm. for Particularly her. Particularly in that period. And he's mm. got a naive fearlessness about mm. him, which is due to his privilege as well, mm. which gets him in trouble. But it, it means he can push her in the direction that she has no kind of awareness that that could create problems within the community because yeah. it's so unconventional what they're doing. Tell us a little bit about that community because it obviously resonates with so many other communities you've created in your other novels. Tell us a bit about the community she finds herself in. Well, everyone's very polite and initially when she's holding the... Fernie says, well, hold these soirees in the homestead and she'll play <laughs> the prepared piano and... It's a weird-sounding instrument and, and she'll recite these quite surreal poems and so forth and nobody's expressing any disagreement or problem with that mm. because that's the manner mm. of the small community. But underneath, under the surface, they're all kind of mildly fuming about it, you know. Mm. Mm. They're kind of furious about <laughs> this. But they would never say it. And Fernie probably picks it up but ha, doesn't matter. They're, they're stupid or whatever. And so it just continues and so it builds underneath as it does in small communities. Yeah. You know, there's so much unsaid mm. and there's so much... There's an oral tradition and then there's a sub-oral tradition mm. going on. Mm. And this is where the plot of the book is driven from this conflict which ends up happening and emerging in really kind of brutal ways. Do you want to talk about the bell, just given it's the, you know, the name of the book? Let's talk about that just briefly, about... The bell. The bell. Well, there is a, a push within this small community to have a village bell installed in the town to, as the character who is the main kind of do-gooder who wants to do this says, to civilise a savage landscape. And Fernie and Sarah, they always come to the Hutchinsons for any kind of civic project like this because they've got lots of money and generally they're very generous with it. But in this case, they don't want to fund the bell because they don't want the bell ringing out across what is already there and what we aren't probably in tune with yet. And there's a family story within the family about that, which means that they cannot ring, they cannot agree to fund a bell. So they're doing something which the community doesn't understand. Why wouldn't you want a village bell in this place? Well, they're saying things like the bell is already ringing listen to the river mouth, look at the bells of the heath. It's already there. Let's not cancel it. Let's not silence it. Let's be here first before we start ringing that old Christian bell. Mm. Mm. Listen to the bell of the world is what Sarah says. Mm. So it's the world we're in. And we've come so far and yet we've come nowhere at all in terms of that type of literacy, I suppose. That need to put up the borders, put up the fences... As again, you know, harkening back to that idea of having to name things, having to give things shape in order to understand them. But in fact, the understanding can be there without the shape. You know, you don't need to name it. No, and, there, and there's a story in Geelong, uh, there's a suburb called Bell Post Hill, which is named after at the very early days of the settlement, a post was put on a hill uh, with a bell, which was, you know, there's various stories about what that bell was for. It could have been a bell to ring when the mailboat came up Cariah Bay. Uh, we're talking very early days in the settlement. 
or it could have been a bell to ring when the Wadarong came towards the settlement to do something about it. And so there was an organised thing that amongst a few squatters that one of them would always be near the bell in case one of these things happened and they would ring that bell and people would come. Yeah. And as the story goes, the Wadarong at, at one point did come towards the settlement. One of the squatters rang the bell and all his, f his friends ran away in fear <laughs> and the Wadarong went as well and he's just standing there with his bell <laughs> on this, this post on this hill. And like... A sort of Dadaist moment. Well, mm. and the misanthrope is born yes. <laughs> at that point, like, here I am. Mm. So mm. that's in the family story. So there's no bell going to be rung mm. on Fernie and Sarah's behalf, mm. you know. That's not what they're about. Mm. They're about playing a different instrument. So let's talk about point of view because we're getting back to structure and to the actual style. So the first section is in the third person. We learn about Sarah's having been sent off to boarding school in England and then coming back and then going to first to stay with Maisie and then going to her uncle. And that's all third person and that's the setup, I suppose. And then we get to the second half, which is very surprising as a reader. Something happens stylistically and I hadn't encountered that before. I mean, I've encountered the use obviously of the second person. It's not very common and it's not very it's often not very well managed. But she talks to us as you often and it's also in the first person. So she slips in and out of those two points of view. Do you know why you did that? That ties back to this idea about trying to write something immersive. Mm. And I am aware that we are in an era where everyone's addicted to their phone. And it's difficult for people actually, even writers and great readers, to read in, in that deep sense that they have in the past. So there is a kind of pressure, perhaps there's a pressure in the literary culture to cryovac our writing, mm. to take the air out of it and to concision is like the kind of gold standard. Yeah, yeah. And so the... The flourish and the giving things a bit more air, I, I understand that to be something that isn't in the zeitgeist, so to speak. Mm. But I wanted the style of the book mm. to match the teeming of the world in which it's set. I always love books where the style embodies the content. Yeah. For me, that's when it goes to the next level mm. and that's all I was interested in doing. I'm not interested anymore... In, not that I really ever was, but I'm not interested in chasing readers. I'm only interested in kind of matching my own paradigm of what I think art might be. So in this case, I wanted the style to match the, the biodiversity, the, the whole thing about the landscape it's set in. And to do that, it had to be in Sarah's voice. Yeah. It couldn't be an all-seeing distance. It had to be immersive mm -hmm. and it had to kind of... And it's, it explores romanticism in a way. It comes at that from different perspectives. Yeah. Yeah, it, as it has to in Australia. Yes, yeah, yeah. And that's, of course, that, that's why when I was trying to describe maybe a little crudely before my experience of reading the book, that's why I had that experience because of what you're doing polyphonically almost, you know. This, yeah. this is a good moment, I think, to actually do the reading yeah. because you actually are going to read an excerpt of Sarah's and in Sarah's voice. Do you want to set it up for us? 
they've been to a magic lantern show in the town. There's a group of visiting field naturalists on the farm with them. They've been to this magic lantern show, then they've come back at night to the homestead and one of these field naturalists, a young fellow called Joe, he gets on very well with Sarah. They've had a bit of a laugh together blowing smoke rings at the magic lantern show. So that's all I really need to say. I think she's back in her room in the house. I had been preoccupied at my writing table, but not with writing. I'd been listening to the ocean. It had occurred to me as we walked home from Mr Hasty's guest house under starlight that the far off sound of the waves roaring in towards the river mouth was some kind of acoustic equivalent to the flecky, fluxing, scratched and stippled ambience engendered in me by the Magic Lantern Show. And so, alone in my room, I'd been listening to the wild sound as if, indeed, I was looking at something. The ocean sonics were forming new pictures in my mind too, pictures which in turn resembled the wash of atmosphere that I often describe privately to myself as world music. On this occasion, I sat there, my eyes wide open but unseeing of the room, seeing instead the moving image of the sound of the ocean playing itself out upon my soul's emulsion. I thought I could detect a central key in which the sound was being played. The teeming harmonics of the far off sound as it traveled towards me over the league of the meandering valley appeared to consist of an infinite number of notes, filaments of sonic pollen really, that nevertheless issued forth an initiatory note and coalesced within the boundaries of a single unifying key. Amazed that such a deep singularity could exist in something so various and of the airs, I was sitting in a state of awesome fascination when the knock on my door came. So that just as I felt that I was myself climbing the night sky along with the sound and reaching high in the assurance of a commonality of all things as evidenced by this ocean key, the sound of knuckle on wood came as if from the imperative of gravity itself. My vision collapsed in less than an instant and I felt suddenly pinned to the earth. The knock came again, but paralyzed by the instant, I could neither speak in reply nor move to answer the door. As I say, I felt quite pinned. I did not so much wait then as hover in my chair, a planet between two very different moons. And thus I was both pinned and in suspension and only dimly aware of my semi-undressed state and of the fire of she-oaks still flickering in my grate. The knock came a third time. And with this third knock, I may have heard the faintest mention of my name. Whatever this additional sound was, it managed to completely dissolve the oceanic dimensions of my room. And when the fourth knock came, its foregrounding erased all sonic expanse so that you wouldn't have even known an ocean was ever there. In front of me, my writing paper, as suddenly I noticed it, was bare in its sheath. The whiteness of the paper was alarming to me, the way it extruded all other colours. The world indeed had become a blank page. I looked down at my nightgown, as pale too as the page. But the skin of my small bosom was itself all blotchy red, undoubtedly from the excitement and now the tension of what I was experiencing. 
apart from Fernie, no one had ever knocked on my door, ever. But now they had and were waiting as persistently as a hawk of sorts on the other side of the door. It was then I imagined for the first time opening the door onto a rufously featured thing with piercing eye, a primary creature and full with intent. I made as if to move but did not budge an inch, I'm sure. But soon after I was standing upright beside the writing table, my body pulsing as stars do above the ridge lines. And I was stepping across the floor the way a heron steps precariously across an exposed reef while knowing all the time what she is seeking. The cold touch of the brass doorknob matched the glint it reflected from the wavering light of the she-oak fire. The fire came and went with the wind. She-oak timber, when cleaved open, can be quite heath pink. And now such colours of our surrounds, colours of the salt and sylvan place, were fueling the glow of the room. And it was into that cleaved timber and candle glow that the hawk then entered, a creature with narrowed focus and outspread wings. Could I shelter there beneath those wings, I momentarily wondered, or will I be torn to pieces in my flesh? Or could I, a woman of my species and no mere maiden, somehow summon that ocean key and the fusing of a truly unforeseen moment into deep equivalence? In truth, such thoughts are as rapid in their vanishing as in their emergence. Yet though they are fleeting, the world is too dangerous without them. And with them, we are prepared for a great receiving, as when a physical touch silences the mind. Suffice to say that before long, the ocean was roaring once again at the mouth. The night's moon-lured water went climbing into the sky, the stars falling into unrecordable depths. The sound suffused the room. Indeed, it was as if the room was the sound. And this unexpected visitor and I went transporting there, among it and of it, by wing and gill on the smoke of centuries and the truth of blank pages towards the dawn. Thank you. Thanks. Well, there's much that we could talk about because we could talk about Eros now, but perhaps we'll just leave that. I've always been very impressed with the way that you actually manage to write about sex and love. And I think the stuff in this is no exception. And it comes upon you in a way that you don't expect and it's always just very beautifully and truthfully rendered and in a very unique way. With our remaining time, can we just move into those two really significant books that are connected very much to Fernie's life and to his place in the world, the talisman that is his book. Can you talk about Such Is Life? So Such Is Life by Joseph Furphy or yeah. Tom Collins, published in 1903, 3,000 copies printed, didn't sell out in Joseph Furphy's lifetime. Moby Dick, published in 1851 by Herman Melville, 3,000 copies printed, didn't sell out in his lifetime, died as a customs officer in New York in the 1890s with the book completely unknown, didn't become known until after the First World War, largely due to D.H. Lawrence championing it on the Oxford World Classics list and boom. So Fernie is obsessed with Such Is Life. Such Is Life is set in the Riverina in the 1880s amongst bullockies in the Riverina.
It's a very sonic book, a very experimental book, proto-modernist book, brilliant book, funny book, teeming book. He loves it. He get, when he's in Europe, he likes to read from it in these kind of highfalutin avant-garde circles and blow their minds with the raucousness of it, the crazy sounds of it. Mm. In Egypt, Alexandria, in Russia, he's read from this book all over the world. Anyway, he's read and carried it everywhere and it's battered and bruised and needs to be rebound. And he takes it to a bookbinder in Moolap, in the marshes of Moolap, and he leaves it with the bookbinder. And the bookbinder, while he's meant to be binding Fernie's book, meets a sailor on the dock in Geelong, an American sailor, who's from the same part of the world that Herman Melville's from, mm. and has a copy of Moby Dick, this unknown book from America. And he talks to this bookbinder of Moolap about this book, this Moby Dick, and he basically ends up lending it to him and then he, the bookbinder loves it so much, he buys it from this American sailor, takes it home, starts fixing Fernie's book and goes, hold on a minute, these two books are like the same book. One <laughs> set on the land, one set on the ocean. And this frustrated writer, this bookbinder of Mullap is a frustrated writer. He's become a bookbinder because he hasn't been permitted entry into the mm. halcyon circles of English literature. So he's in the backwaters in the colony in a marsh, you know, tanning his leather with swan shit and meant to be rebinding this such is life. And he has his moment where he realises that he could make a book, he could compose a book and it would be the book of the world. It would be to unstitch Moby Dick and unstitch such is life and re-stitch them, put them back together as the one book interleaved. And when Fernie comes back to get his book, it's twice as big. But he's too polite, isn't he? He's too polite to complain. He kind of takes it on, but he can't carry it round the paddocks anymore like a talisman, can he, because it's massive. No, he's been smoking hash all the way from... Mm. which he, he got from a hawker he met on the way, mm. a Lebanese hawker. So he is stoned as mm. well. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of opened him up a bit, even a bit more than he usually would be. Mm. But nevertheless, he is this open-minded person who can see what Sarah's doing when she's preparing the piano with elements from the bush and he can kind of see mm. what the bookbinder s- is doing with this book of the world. Mm. Yeah, no, that makes creative mm. sense. Yeah, okay. So, <laughs> just, so it's that openness to mm. something else, isn't it? We now move into the third and sort of crescendo final part of your, of mm. the, of your novel. And in this... Everything, you know, as it should, comes together in, in a remarkable way. I mean, just technically what you managed to do by interleaving three plots and three scenes and just moving from one to the other and it does get kind of faster and more and more dexterous and it's remarkable to read. It's quite energetically compelling. But what happens, I mean, without giving too much of the plot away, I mean, what happens to Sarah? She's older now, Fernie's gone, he's died. She's still been living in the homestead and on the land. You know, she's had a life, but a much more solitary life. She's not making piano art anymore, is she? She's not doing it, but she's corresponding. She's got a long correspondence with someone in America. The town is basically ostracised mm. Fernie and Sarah. Mm. And so she's become isolated. Yeah. There's a whiff of Miss Havisham about her. The crazy old woman. She was all right when she was beautiful and young, you see, but something happens. Yeah, and so she (laughs) spends the intervening decades writing the story of herself, which is the middle section of the book. So that first person section of the book is... That is what she was writing the whole time in isolation 
in the homestead. But she comes out of this through reading Fernie's library and he subscribes to a natural history magazine in America and she starts to read about fungi, basically. And so the book's about interconnection and there's no greater metaphor for interconnection that I know of than fungi. So the mycelial structure underpinning everything. So I don't want to spoil the story, but she ends up reading this natural history magazine from New York and starts corresponding with a person who is writing in there about fungi, who is all, also happens to be a very well-known famous composer, but he's, he's not wearing that identity in the context of this natural history magazine. We're talking the 50s now. We're in the late 50s? We're in 1959. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, the book ends in Melbourne Town Hall at a concert, and that's all I'll say. Where, and once again, like the Bullock and the Whale in the Moby Dick, such as life, the modernism of America and the weird modernism of Australia find a connection through Sarah and Fernie in a landscape which has not shown much of an ear for it. And so rather than the plot in the second part of the book being fulfilled literally Mm. by the narrative, Mm. it is taken to another place and a similar correspondence is set up. And this is a kind of technique where you leave gaps and allow the reader to come into the story and put the connections together. I mean, I learnt a lot about this by reading Roberto Bellano, Mm. 2666, Mm. the way that book works, four books, not literally connected. The reader has to become Mm. active to make the connections. And because this is a novel about connectedness and all of us, Mm. and because it's coming from an urgent place in a way, that felt like the way to go. Mm. Yeah, so a lot of things come together at that end and, and it's, it's, it's one of those things that happens like when you're singing a song, when you're writing a song, that these things come upon you and you, you either go with them or you don't. Mm. And you are a musician, of course, and you're still making music. Have you got anything planned? What's happening next? I know writers often hate being asked that, but I'm, you know, given the, the nature of this book, I'm wondering what happens next. Well, I wonder that too. <laughs> I did for the first time in my life ever mm, mm. have a sense when I finished this book of that's kind of, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if there's anything much more for me to do. Like really that's, yeah. that's, that's not a pretentious, that's just how I felt and feel. Mm. So I, I'm just watching and waiting and not rushing and just biding my time and reading and, and writing a few things, but I, I don't know yet. Mm. No, mm. I don't know. Well, I think we're going to have to, to leave it there. We've um, probably gone over our, our designated time, but I'd just like to thank uh, Gregory Day tonight and thank you all for coming and for standing there. It was fantastic to have you here. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Al. The Bell of the World was chosen by a slew of local booksellers as Marcha's pick for Melbourne City Reads. And you can find copies at all reading stores or at our website, where you can also stream previous episodes of the Readings Podcast. You'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film and TV. And you can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of this show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge traditional owners and pay my earnest respects to elders past, present and emerging and all First Nations people. Thank you. <laughs>